Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Scholar AI Founders Pod. Please remember to catch us anywhere you get your podcasts and find us on our YouTube channel. And welcome back. Um, so, Lakshay, some big news this week out of Apple with the release of the Vision Pro. I'm actually yet to see any in the wild. Um, I don't know, have you or just kind of like go through your thoughts? What do you, what do you think about this new platform? Yeah, I'm not in, in San Francisco, so I haven't seen people just like meandering around with it. But there was a, I think a pretty viral clip. I'm pretty sure it came out. I can't, I believe it came out of a Portland cafe where there was someone just like sitting in the cafe, like on the Vision Pro, just like working or whatever. And someone next to them is like doing just like really cool magic tricks. Um, and it just, it's like, ah, disconnected from reality versus too tied to reality. Um, I think, uh, I don't know. It's, I think it's cool. I think like a lot of the, like having watched a lot of reviews, whatever of it, I think it's like Apple very much seemed to be wanting to like make an AR platform. And like, this is like the taking the current technology we have as close as we can get to true AR. Um, like I've heard, uh, like I watched videos of like, uh, I think there was a, I believe she was Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, I'm not sure, but she wore the Vision Pro for 24 hours and even tried like skiing with it on after like getting them to give her all of Bunny Hill to wear with them. Um, and general, the kind of sense is that like it's neat, it's got cool like gimmicks to it, the finger touching feature is pretty cool. Um, but there's not like a, it's still a reality disconnect in some fashion. Like it still gets tiring on your head. It's still like you're putting this on and using it for a short period of time, not really trying to like have it present in your life permanently, you know? Um, so I think like aspirational technology, it's obviously the first one of hopefully a couple of iterations. Um, but overall, like still exciting. I, I personally, like, I can't get over the whole like finger touching and like overall finger tracking features. They're, that's just so cool. It feels like what Apple has executed on really well in kind of stereotypical fashion is in just hardware design. Yes, it's heavy, but it's incredibly high quality. And in, in some ways that's like the, the, the trade-off, right? Even the AirPods Max are very heavy relative to other, you know, on your, over your headphones. And then also just the fidelity, like you're saying, the eye tracking and the, and the kind of touch recognition from what I have heard, having not used it myself is, is phenomenal. Um, I'll preface this by saying I'm kind of long AR VR in, in the kind of, you know, extended timeline. So five plus years, but right now I just, I can't get over the form factor and having it, you know, kind of weighing down on us, having tried some of the quests and, and that kind of thing. Also, it was funny. We were walking by an Apple store this weekend, my wife and I, and she noticed it, people using it in a store. And she's like, oh, that's the new Vision Pro. She's like, I hadn't seen it. Um, I was like, yeah. And she's like, what would I use that for? And I was like, I can't think of anything at all that you would use it for, right? She's a, she's a nurse practitioner. She's not living in spreadsheets. She's not living in dual monitors. She has no use for 36 to 300 inches of screen display. So they're just simply, I tried to rack my brain for any potential use case for her and just simply couldn't come up with one other than maybe it's a better Peloton, right? Like maybe there's some sort more immersive exercise path, but given the weight of the headset, I just simply couldn't see how exercising in that thing would be sustainable. So I don't know. It, it, it's kind of fascinating. I think in some ways I am seeing some videos of people flying with them and kind of being immersed in kind of a cinematic, you know, movie experience on a flight. So I think in some ways there's probably some fringe use cases where it is, you know, arguably better than whatever the, the, the alternative would be. Um, but, but still not something that I think can really rationalize its, its use on a very frequent basis. Shashi, anything to add? Let's give credit to Apple for doing something that they haven't done 
in a long time, which is to create something new and noteworthy. I think that that that, that does deserve kudos. Uh, to to hold Apple and Google kind of in in comparison, Google has released lots and lots of things, and um, I I don't think any of us would count on Google to continue maintaining support for something that didn't drive ultimately um, ad sales. I, I think I think where I would trust Apple is to continue to support Vision Pro, even though it won't move the needle today financially. Um, regardless of regardless of how many units they sell, it's just not going to be material for their financials. Uh, that that that's just the reality for for Apple. Um, but I think it will definitely create interesting content. What we're seeing is lots of you know we, we shared on. Uh, on our thread, the the guy driving the Cybertruck with the headset on, you know, clicking his fingers together, mouth agape, while, while the Cybertruck is self-driving down the highway. Uh, there's going to be lots of interesting content like this uh, posted. It will be interesting for sure, and um, and people will talk about it. That's that's absolutely true. And so I think that's what Apple will get out of this. Is it will be interesting again at some level. It will have a new product to talk about and that that will all create some level of enthusiasm excitement we won't move the numbers unfortunately for apple but it will be exciting i do trust apple to continue to support it long enough for it to continue having a chance to to move the needle down downstream um as i as i said on our thread if if it could get lighter if the weight of the headset could get lighter if the resolution could double from here um if there were somehow a way to deliver this without a cord uh, I would happily pay 5K, maybe 10K for one of these. Uh, given the form factor today, it doesn't feel very useful f- for me. Um, yeah. I think that's right. I mean, I think that as an extreme overgeneralization, Apple tends to do consumer hardware, at least at scale, better than almost any other company, arguably any other company in the world. They're also masters at the sequential stepping up price. Like, so change uh, it for a moment. Um, my watch basically gave out last week. Like it was just like, it, like I literally charged it overnight. I woke up and by like 9 a.m. the battery was dead, which is fine. It was like roughly five years old. I think it was like a series five. So it was fine. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a new Apple Watch. So I go to like check out. I start on the series nine. I start, you know, kind of playing with the options. And then by then I, I leave with the ultra two because it's, you know, the, the $100 difference by the time I stacked out the nine, just I simply couldn't rationalize not going to the bigger and better uh, thing. So, Anyway, um, that's kind of a, a testament to, I think, what you said, Shashin, that I agree with it, is that Apple will continue to invest in it, and this won't be the won't be the best version, and instead it kind of will be the, the first in a series. And I will say that of all, I, I'm much more likely to buy an Apple headset than I am any other brand's headset, just given the ecosystem advantage I know it's going to have, right? It'll play nicely with my iPhone, my AirPods, my Mac, et cetera. And so that does just kind of lend itself very nicely to onboarding people, I think, I think seamlessly, especially if it is ever actually going to be used for professional tasks. Okay. So let's, let's kind of transition a little bit out of the Vision Pro, you know, XR space and then into kind of the AI space, which is where we're, we are building, um, every day. And Shashi, you sent something over in the Slack, which I found kind of incredibly interesting. You kind of asked the thought provoking question of how do you value opportunities in AI? And I, I'm going to let you start. I've got some thoughts that I would like to deliver to the group, but, but why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what kind of inspired that question, where that kind of comes from and maybe ways that you're thinking about it as well. 
the traditional business school answer for what are the inputs for any business? Uh, there's usually just two, labor and capital, sort of the, the orthodoxy of kind of assessing the inputs for any business. All you have is labor, the people, and the productivity of those people, and capital, the, the, the capital you have available, the financial capital you have available, and what you can turn that into, whether that's factories or machinery. Um, in this AI world, the, we have this, this very interesting kind of third dimension, which is the, the data that you have. Um, and uh, and what what that data can enable you to do. Uh, as we've talked to lots of people in this space, investors, other builders, um, there's almost uh, in almost every conversation there's a there's a, there's a discussion about what proprietary data you have, what data you have that's unique to your organization that enables you to do something that others couldn't do. And I just want to tie in um, a component of this, which is. Um, so uh, Perplexity continues to do well in both their product and their fundraising, um, supposedly raising $103 million from Bezos, from NVIDIA, and others to replace Google Search. And, uh, and I, I want to pose this to you guys. How do you see those three things, labor, capital, and data, uh, in the AI space as evaluators and and specifically for in, for this perplexity investment, because it seems to me that the perplexity answer is not proprietary data at all. It seems to me that it's probably just common crawl. At least that's my understanding. It's probably m more what they do with that common crawl data. Yeah, perplexity like <laughs> perplexes me <laughs> uh, in regards to like just like I don't earnestly like I. I recognize that a lot of people really like the way perplexity works. And I think that they just had some big like marketing sweep or something that's led to like a lot of interviews and whatever. And like, I guess like very fundamentally, like when I look at what they do, it's well formatted web scraping with search, right? Like just really, really well formatted web scraping with search. I think like when I look at like defensibility and whatnot, like I'm sure like they're using, like maybe they have some custom models maybe they're doing like mixture of experts, whatever it may be that like gives it some uniqueness over just like slap in LM, slap in the ability to call a web browser and just read a web scraper. Um, but like, earnestly, it doesn't stick out to me as something that sounds super like long-term, you know, like I don't see why, like if Google actually saw like LMs and search as like an existential threat, why they could just eliminate perplexities like business model in like a couple of days, you know? as how fast Google moves, how like fast, like competitors move different story. But to me, like perplexity, like it just doesn't stick out as an approach to me that's convincing. And that just Wait, might be my perspective. But can you say more about that? Like if you're, if you're Google actually, how do you, what do you do in that few days to wipe out perplexity? I mean, given that Google, like they already have like all the infrastructure for really intense web scraping. They have like all sorts of like understanding, like user traffic, whatever, like, they have LMs, they have all the GPUs to run their own models. I believe perplexity started on some version of GPT, but Google self hosts, Google has searched. They already own like the user space of information retrieval. Just go ahead, start rewriting how your basic web page works to like begin integrating a little bit of like perplexity style output, do a little bit of the web scraping for free rather than just showing where the relevant content came out of. And all it's of a just, sudden, are you saying it's just UI? It's, it's primarily just it having like UI to me. Yeah. I think I want to inject a little bit of a different thought there. And, and I think the reason why Google might not want to do it is in reference to an earlier part of this conversation. It's fundamentally against their core business. 
mm-hmm. which is by using LLM-based search or AI-based search, you circumvent the need to click on the resource yourself. And what you actually get is kind of answers directly out of that system. And inherently, that process, at least in the way it's being done now, eliminates the necessity for ads. Right. And like when you think about Google being primarily an ads company, right, where their, their revenue is basically made on ads, you know, in some ways, AI search, you know, kind of AI search and synthesis replaces a lot of that legwork where people are going to be clicking out on those page links, right? And so I just think fundamentally, Google, while they maybe could do it, it would be against their core business and it would be a dramatic pivot for them. They're probably just not willing to undertake. And then for the kind of natural extension of that thought, which is, okay, then why bet on perplexity versus some other AI search engine? That to me feels like a little bit of an argument of momentum. Right. Perplexity had some early traction. They've, you know, if, if your hypothesis is that AI search is going to replace traditional web-based search, um, and people are just simply betting on perplexity because of team and other kind of intrinsic factors, not necessarily because they can point to a very specific differentiating advantage would be my take on it from the outside looking in. Do you think it's, this is classic innovators dilemma that Google can't undermine itself? Uh, it seems that Google has the game theory option of either adapting, accepting a lower revenue per search, but offering their users a better product and therefore eliminating perplexity or just hanging on to, you know, $5 billion to buy out perplexity at some point while kind of taking the lazy approach to just keep doing what they're doing, milk the cow while it's there to milk, uh, knowing they're going to, there's going to be a slow attrition of users. If I were, I mean, like, if I were sitting in Google's spot with the, again, with the inherent paradox of like, we make search better and thus make our ad revenue lower. Like, if I were like thinking about Google in like 50 years time, and we assume like AI search is just part of the native experience, Google is still like the only like entirely free option for anyone in the world to use. Um, Mind you, like perplexity has like costs, they have like query limits, whatever, right? If we assume that Google stays in the position they are, I imagine that's just the version that emerges in like 10 years time is that AI search is native and just like part of the AI search is also some like ad optimization on the results you're getting, right? Like maybe you'll you'll get like what is considered the proper answer and it reaches some level of standard that people are like, yeah, I understand there are ads in this, but here's like the source truth. It's just in the same way that when I search up like kettlebells on Google, there'll be some sponsored results at the top before actual pages saying top 10 kettlebells from like bodybuilding.com or something, right? And like, to me, like, that's why I imagine happens realistically where where I think like the startup space is weird to me in this, like just in the space of just like, we want to win information retrieval is if you're relying on GPT-4, you're relying on Claude, you're relying on like a third party LLM, your token costs add up a lot, right? Especially as you web scrape, like, the data you're retrieving is not just token in, token out. It's now tokens to figure out best data, to do RAG, to then format however, right? Um, and that just does not seem super sustainable in a world where like Google can survive for a long, long time and then do it the correct way, whatever that looks like. Do you think Perplexity's valuation is based on the assumption that they're going to have ads just like Google? It feels like you wouldn't value them in this way unless you, unless you had a kind of a clear mental model of how they they drive revenue. And you can see in their their sources when you do a perplexity search, they they have kind of boxes of sources at the bottom mm-hmm. um, after the, the the initial answer. 
And you could you could easily envision how that would have you know em embedded advertising. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I um I don't really think I have a well developed thought on like what is the envisioned like how does perplexity become like a multi billion dollar business in a couple of years time. I don't know what that revenue model really looks like beyond like I think advertising makes sense, but. I might be conflating it with another like information retrieval, like AI native search company where it's like, oh, we want to remove the problem of ads from internet. So I don't know. Um, it could be, I think it's perplexity. I might be missing it though. I'm not sure. I think the, the challenge with AI based search and infusing that with that, well, well, start, let me, let me, let me start by answering your question. Do I think that, the investors of Perplexity are looking at it through an ads-based revenue kind of generator. I think that part of it's going to be ads. I think that they're probably pitching some other alternative revenue that is not direct to consumer subscription charges nor ads. I, th I think they are pitching some other long tail advantage, whether that be in data mining. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Again, I, I don't want to speculate, but I think the, I think there's almost certainly a third kind of prong to that approach because fundamentally, if AI works as intended and the answers are coming back to the queries, there is no reason to click on the ads unless you, unless you are in fact purchasing like a physical item or something like that. In which case the value proposition for the advertisers goes down dramatically, right? An impression or somebody seeing your brand on search is only worth so much. What you ultimately want people to do is to click on your service to kind of end up on your website to kind of sell them whatever product you're selling them, which is what Google's really good at. Right, Google can serve you a list of pages that then you then click on and end up at the third-party site. Um, Perplexity and other kind of AI search engines are kind of trying to eliminate that need to follow up. Arc, Arc browser um, being kind of another example of that. So, I think that ads can only serve a certain fraction of that market in the future. And my overall intuition is that the way that companies spend ad dollars online is going to change. I don't think it will go away because people still need have the need to advertise. They still have to reach users and, you know, in a future, whoever has the most users is still going to be, you know, kind of at the highest leverage point for selling ads. But in any event, I do think the ways that we see ads are going to be different, meaning that what you might see is a streaming of your AI generated answers alongside a sidebar of ads that may or may not be pertinent to the actual search that you are um, performing. I think the other thing that we didn't really touch on was the data moat advantage. And I still, I still fundamentally believe that we're headed towards a world in which repackaging of data is going to prove larger and larger returns. I mean, like even when people have access to the same amounts of data, the way that data is parsed and then passed to AI systems can be a technical moat in and of itself, even if the data source is not sure, maybe a more rec replicable moat than having differentiated data, but um, in any event, it will still be a technological hurdle that one company will have to kind of mimic or duplicate or recreate over another in the way this information is passed to AI. I, I agree. And I think it's when when this conversation comes up, I think people inherently, their instinct is to overvalue proprietary data and undervalue the UI. And the perplexity example we just talked about is a perfect example of not having any unique proprietary data and having a compelling UI that makes it easier to, to get to the endpoint the customer, the user is trying to get to with less friction and that driving value. 
I think that's right. I also think that far too many people, I think I tweeted something like this somewhere or X. I don't know how to say that anymore. Um, uh, over the weekend, it's just like, I think far too many people are looking at AI through the very narrow aperture. That is, how can we use AI to replace this task that already exists and improve its efficiency, right? So maybe we'll do it faster or, or, do, or do so more cheaply. That to me feels like just such a very small fraction of this over AI puzzle. And, and, and maybe sure, maybe it's the first fraction, you know, it's the thing that probably happens most logically next. But to me, the much more interesting and important question to ask is, what are the things that AI are going to make possible that were previously impossible because of new workflows, not the replacement of kind of already installed workflows? I just think that in all these conversations, like what are your technical moats? What are your, what are your, what's your source of proprietary data? You know, what can you do that other people can't? A lot of it is going to be in the implementation of these things, right? It's, it's pushing the boundary of what these AIs can do and kind of situating those into very impactful workflows such that people are getting more for their time and doing things that they couldn't do otherwise. Yeah, I think a lot of the old paradigms just comes from like, when you look at before the whole alum hype wave of ChatGPT and onwards, like AI first businesses were built on the model that we are helping this professional, like um, the example that comes to mind is like a doctor or like a radiologist who's looking at a data, like a bit of data. And instead of doing their own manual inspection, we train a very specific model that's so niche in like, perfectly capturing what the data is trying to tell you, right? And I think that translates into what's happening in the modern day too, where a lot of what's happened with LLMs has been that like, because the validation step is still so pertinent, like we can't exactly like rely on it to just auto like act and just like not look at what it's outputting. Um, whether that's like, just like reputationally, like how like well it's safeguarded against like what our brand desires or um, whether it's just like so up to a certain level of quality or whether it even just achieved what we were hoping it would, the need for validation still drives that like idea of, Hey, help me supplement this task I already do. Cause I need to review you once you're done with it. Right. Um, I think like it's when you look at like all the startups that are being born today, they're in that lane. Cause I feel like that's the easiest way to kind of think through it. Of just like, Hey, trust the human to read me and read what I've generated once I'm done with it. I think asking that question of like, do things that are previously impossible gets a lot harder, even just at like scale. Cause once you have, if you're trying to build a business out of like producing something that's impossible, how do you know you're doing it well? How do you know that people are beginning to trust what you're writing? Um, like there's a first step in there of how do we develop LMs and how do we develop AI applications that it's easy for the lay person to use them act on them and continue to use them without having to like edit or revise or go back again. Um, autopilot versus copilot. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I think it's very well said that it is, a, it is a more natural extension to simply say, we already know this task exists and it is important and it is economically viable. Just make this thing better, you know, or cheaper. And that works. Um, I guess the only thing I'm saying is that to me feels like missing the, the forest of the trees so to speak. And that like, I think AI is going to do much more important things or help us to do much more important things and simply just making our day to day, you know, more efficient. And I think that's the future I would encourage people to kind of think more about and to steer more towards simply than just like replacing the monotony of our everyday work, which is important and will happen too. Um, one, one to me seems like an inevitability. Um, the other one seems to me like a necessary consequence 
for builders who want to kind of leave a lasting impact on the world. Okay. So transitioning kind of out of that, um, Shasha, I want to throw it over to you for a little bit. You kind of started this year saying that you thought um, war and weather would kind of be um, central kind of pillars or so of kind of how 2024 was shaping up. Um, I think your thoughts have um, not necessarily evolved, but kind of you're adding to those thoughts as we kind of progress throughout the year. So I'll, I'll kick it over to you. You want to give a little primer to kind of how those mm-hmm. thoughts are changing? We've seen war and we've seen weather uh, already. Uh, it's uh, early February, and um, we've already seen um, significant weather events. We've seen significant military conflict in this this year. I wanted to add a third element to my thought process, which is debt. And so I'm just going to read. I'm just going to read some numbers to you to sell, help set the stage for this. Um, the U.S. The U.S. debt, the federal debt, is 34 trillion, which is about 250 thousand dollars per taxpayer. So that's a significant amount of debt. It's growing at a rate of a trillion dollars every hundred days. So our our debt to GDP ratio is about 120%, uh, which means we owe more in our federal debt than the entire economy. Um, so that, that's a that's a very significant amount of debt. Um, our interest payments on the debt will be about a trillion dollars this year in 2024. And it's expected to reach two trillion by 2030. So it's a it's a very large amount of just interest payments on our debt. Uh, the interest payments alone are more than our our annual revenues. So what are the ways to deal with this? So if if, if you agree that the the federal debt is a problem, uh, what what can a government do to to navigate out of this? So uh, the government could cut spending. The most material line items of spending that could be cut are Social Security and Medicare. It's very unlikely a politician would agree to that because it would basically mean the end of their career. So it, it, this, uh, I have very little confidence that any cuts, significant reforms to Social Security or Medicare will happen, but that's the first option. The second option is is just growing your way out of the problem. I think this has been kind of the, the hope and prayer version of uh, the resolution to this. Uh, the only way this works is if you keep spending flat, meaning you're not, you're not going to increase your spending, and you continue to realize the benefit of significant growth. We're talking five percent plus annually. Uh, then you can grow your way out of this problem. So th- there is a component of growth that I think is necessary for the solution, but but there's also a component of restraint in terms of spending that's also hard to envision, given the the last two decades of of spending increase. Um, the third is to raise taxes. So this goes com- this goes in conflict with the, the the maintenance of growth. If you want growth, you can't dramatically raise taxes because then the government's taking the money out of the system that would otherwise be going to fuel growth. It would be taking it out of businesses, out of investors' hands, putting in the government's hands to pay down the debt. If you if you raise taxes significantly, you're not going to get the growth. Um, so this, uh, I also don't think this is hugely likely in a way that's material enough to change the numbers, but it is an option that governments have to dramatically raise taxes in a way that would, uh, would cut down the debt. Um, many taxpayers now, especially kind of the global elite taxpayers, where most of the revenue comes from anyway, are very mobile. In fact, they're more mobile than ever. And any country that dramatically raises taxes sees an outflow of their biggest taxpayers because they can, simply. The the fourth is printing 
a lot of money. Um, so you could have the government basically create new money. Uh, there, there are, for example, people talking about a trillion dollar coin that could be minted. You could mint lots and lots of new money, um, have it be uh, dilutive, meaning all of our dollars get less valuable. And then you take that new money and you pay off the debt. You pay down significant parts of the debt. So that, that would be one way and that feels the most realistic. Um, then the, the last, the fifth and last option would be to default on, on part of your debt. This would basically say, I'm not going to pay this loan back. You own treasuries. We're not going to, we're not going to pay you the value of these treasuries. Uh, the tre the U.S. treasuries are the backbone of the international financial system. So, uh, that would be uh, catastrophic on a, on a global scale if the U.S decided not to, to pay for its treasuries, basically there would be no more trusted instrument on the global stage. Uh, and as much as people argue for a bundle of other things, I, I don't think Euro or uh, Yuan or any other currency can sufficiently replace this. Um, so those are, those are the five ways. I'll just tell you where that leads me and then I'll, I'll kind of pose some questions to you. Where that leads me is to think that the most likely option here is to hope for growth and to devalue currency by creating lots of new money as the only reasonable path out of this. So if, if that's what, if that's what you had conviction in, if you, if you were to bet on this, then what would you do? How would you play this? There, there are a few different assets that could potentially insulate you. So, uh, so would you, would you want to buy gold, whether that literal gold that you physically hold or a gold ETF? Would you want to buy lots of Bitcoin? Uh, I heard Kathy Wood speak over the weekend um, in Scottsdale, and she's she's a big proponent of Bitcoin. Uh, she thinks Bitcoin's going to six hundred fifty thousand, and then to the multiple millions relatively soon. I forget the specific time frame she said on that, but uh, she's she's very very bullish on Bitcoin. Uh, and the third option would be potentially land, just owning lots and lots of land. This is sort of the Bill Gates strategy of, you know, own America's farmland and um, insulate yourself from, from financial risk, government risk and otherwise. Um, and I'll just add to this as a last, last, uh, last thing before I um, ask you guys to, to react to it. Um, our debt to GDP is not the highest in the world. Uh, I mentioned ours is about 120%. Japan's at 255%. Uh, Greece is at 168% debt to GDP. Uh, Singapore also 168%. Uh, Italy is 144%. And the, the G7 average, uh, the, the, the seven largest countries are at 128%. Nobody knows what China's is. Uh, there just isn't enough information there to have any, any actual sense of that. But, um, but that, that's what the, the global stage looks like. So it's not just us. The, the reason I bring that up is to say lots of countries have the same debt to GDP problem. It feels like all the currencies are just going to have to devalue. So what does that mean? They all devalue against what? Um, so uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, to start as a primer, I, I don't, truthfully, smarter minds than mine have, have thought a, a lot about this. And so I think just mostly I've, I've got two reactions, which is kind of the general kind of broad strokes of what I think all this means. And there's the the kind of much more specific tactical approach of like what I'm actually doing about it, not knowing the outcome, right? So kind of this game theory of all outcomes are in, in theory at least possible. And then how do you prepare for the most likely of them without completely overloading yourself in one direction or the other? Um, 
in in kind of many ways, I think that a lot of people, the general consensus might be to simply do one of your options, meaning just increase taxes. I think that you're right in that it that seems um, quite short-sighted in the sense that people with options, those who have the highest money, are going to continue to find loopholes in the tax structure, right or wrong, is, is, a, is a debate for a different time. But the, the point being is oh, an overall increase in taxes, I don't think will have the net effect that some believe that it will, right? The numbers in theory can get quite large, but the numbers in practice, the actual amount that would be recaptured in that structure, I think would be far less than people imagine. So I, I agree with you in that the logical extension of that and kind of discounting the other less plausible scenarios are that you do get a devaluation of currency, probably on a global scale. It is not yet clear to me what other currencies aren't in some ways tethered to the U.S. dollar, meaning that historically gold and other kind of precious metal commodities have, in some cases, decoupled themselves from growths in the U.S. stock market or otherwise. Bitcoin, as of yet and as of my knowledge, has not, meaning anytime the kind of U.S. stock market goes up, you see similar or outpacing increases in Bitcoin, but you don't necessarily see opposite conventions, meaning Bitcoin is not typically going up as stocks are going down or vice versa. So I'm not really sold on Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies being uh, an appropriate store of value as a hedge almost against the US dollar. However, what I will say is I, I don't find the ownership of true materials, meaning like the actual ownership of physical gold, nor the ownership of land overall compelling because of how difficult that market would be to make should you have to actually sell out of that position, right? If we're already kind of walking down the path of, you know, less than ideal financial times, I think that having a massive amount of land short of actually being able to cultivate it and produce your own resources uh, would be a far more difficult thing to capitalize on, so to sell to somebody else or to turn in for some sort of exchange of value than something else that lives on an exchange, so to speak. So the ways that I'm thinking about this are buying ETFs and alternative uh, commodities. So a gold ETF, as an example, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and Ethereum ETFs, as examples, those kinds of things. And then maybe even some foreign uh, ETFs, although I don't have any foreign exchange ETFs uh, presently. So that's that's kind of how we're preparing for it, and um, in some ways, kind of taking the gamble that, that the dollar will remain somewhat resilient. Um, although I do believe that some of the forecasts that you presented are, are fairly compelling. So, yeah, I guess the the way like being very young and juvenile and having very recently developed an income stream, <laughs> um, the way I kind of just like look at money in general, um, I think on the macroeconomic level. Like when you describe those possibilities, it just seems most reasonable to me that like a devaluation of currency by printing more just seems like probabilistically likely as an approach, like trusting on growth, trusting on advanced taxes on individuals, businesses, et cetera, just seems pretty unlikely. I think like the way I look at money, again, not having to think too much about what happens in like one year, let alone like 20. Um, I think the way I kind of look at it is that like, I... My parents, for example, like I, I was very much raised on the idea is like the, the asset to own is like gold and land, right? Like if you have those two, you're going to be fine for the rest of your life. I think I kind of get where Damon's coming from in that like land as like a asset comes with a lot more complications and how you sell it and how the market goes. But I think like 
housing to me is an interesting one, especially since a lot of people my generation, like a couple years older, like look at housing as something that's increasingly unachievable. I kind of think of two things, at least for my current circumstances, where the housing market doesn't seem to be showing signs of like popping anytime soon. And two, like I find that like thus far ETFs and just like managed like exchanges and funds have done pretty well for my just like personal investments. Um, it just seems like at least for myself, I don't see how a housing market like shoots downwards. The demand for land, the demand for housing is always there. Um, and so I think like holding on to a resource that is materially limited makes a lot of sense. And trusting people who are smarter than me with my money is also makes sense. <laughs> so that's what I do. <laughs> Luxury the landlord. I like yeah. that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm playing with the land idea as well. Um, uh, I was talking to a gentleman who buys big pieces of land in Florida and gets an ag exemption. So he does an agricultural exemption. So you don't end up paying very much in taxes. And, uh, and then you can kind of lease out the land to farmers and for different use cases, but you end up owning the land. So should currency devalue 50%, let's say by, you know, to, to pay off a big chunk of debt, then uh, we, you know, the land would sort of naturally be worth twice as much. Um, I've, I've been thinking about this in the context of, of Texas, because I think Texas and Florida are the two real growth economies um, in the U.S. Uh, and I like betting on uh, the, the space outside of Austin. Uh, I think Austin will continue to grow and be a, a hub of economic growth and development. It's already really expensive in Austin. So kind of the zone outside of Austin, whether that's kind of Austin, San Antonio, Austin, Houston, Austin, College Station, Dallas, that, that's sort of the, the zone where I would con con consider buying kind of a big chunk of land and uh, using that same algorithm. I don't, uh, just, just as, a, as a clarifying thought, two things. Number one, I think that if I was long on the value of land overall, then I think, and wanted to remain somewhat liquid than a, than a REIT makes sense, right? I mean, you can invest in land without the actual physical burden of having to own the, the land itself. I think that my my take on it is and that land is 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 difficult to extract value from in again these kind of disaster stage setting scenarios. So if you're trying to to guard against slight downturns in the market or even modest downturns in the market, then I think those physical commodities make a lot of sense. I think that my brain naturally goes to if you're going to have a fifty percent or a you know 75% devaluation of a dollar, then we're living in a very different reality than we're living in right now. And so I just don't know how much, you know, owning all the land, not having anybody that can afford to lease the land from you, and then you having a physical deed to a piece of paper that you now can't defend or, or anything else. I, I'm just not exactly sure how much value that really holds in that kind of, you know, again, worst case scenario. So it's not necessarily that I'm saying any of that is likely. It just feels like, um, in some ways, going to the extreme of that decision tree feels like a bet in, in futility, simply meaning that like, if you double down that approach, what you end up thinking ends up becoming reality, then in some ways you have, you've optimized for the worst case scenario and you're kind of left in a world that maybe you don't want to necessarily, you know, be the king of anyway. So I, I don't really have a better answer for you is the unfortunate part, but um, it does, it does strike me as like, kind of, you know, uh, somewhat of a depressing thought to think like, you know, I have all this valuable land. No one can buy it from me. And I can't, I'm, I'm not about to grow corn on it. I just don't know how to do that. So I, I don't know what I would do with this land, but. 
I say worst case scenario, you invest in Boy Scout merit badges, and that's how you <laughs> survive the worst case. You'll be set. Camp in, maybe a kayak, and you're good. <laughs> Forage in, leave no trace, you're set. <laughs> Spoken like a true Oregonian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have you guys seen uh, Leave the World Behind on Netflix? No, I've heard good things, though. Okay, so this I, I watched it on, on a flight. Uh, home from Scottsdale, and uh, I, I want a bunker now. I, I need to find a way to get like a two-bedroom bunker. I, st I started talking to uh, a guy who could make this happen, and um, he his response was, um, I've always thought a bunker sounds great until I realized that I'm stuck with my kids in it. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> I can imagine that being uh, being uh, an irritant after about twelve hours. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I it's interesting. My um, in some ways, like my upbringing was a little bit um, like doomsday preparedness, just because of like I'm from an area with very little resources. A lot of the legacy kind of learnings of the Great Depression were kind of still commonplace, right? People um, almost saving to an excess, like almost hoarding in a sense that like they just simply weren't aware of how many resources were going to be available to them, you know, c come a, a different a slight change in scenario. So I'm not sure. I, I just, I, I don't know similar to you if like under what circumstances I would need a bunker and also be signing up for the reality of living in said bunker after whatever has happened. So, Well, hey, to, to bookend it. If you have the Apple Vision Pro in your bunker, you're set for you know, <laughs> just live in a different reality and you're set. <laughs> yeah. That may be the real use case for, for Vision yeah. Pro. So I'm now bunker. super long on Apple Vision Pro. Congratulations, mm. Apple. Unfortunately, the version you have is the last version. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We didn't even uh, touch base in the old virtual land that is the metaverse where you just buy real estate there and then you. Um, really can't do anything with any of it. So. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Well, I think we're about at time today. So thank you all for joining us and um, make sure to catch us back here in one week at all the places that you typically get your podcasts and find us on YouTube at the Scholar AI YouTube channel. Thanks everybody. See you next time.